Our reading today is an excerpt from God Gave Me a Word by Amy Petrie Shaw. And God said, let me hang a word around your neck so that everyone can see it, and you better speak it when you're out, because I'll know if you don't. And the word was love. Love came down for the world to know, and I'm holding this word so that even when you and God are just like that, you can't pretend you didn't know. I cannot pull it down, not for a politician spewing hatred, not for a minister vomiting out bile in the costume of a saint, not for money or for country or for kin. I'm holding my word in my mouth, Because the next time I see God, I want to be able to say, you gave me a word, and I carried it just the way you asked it. It seems that popular culture relishes telling it like it is. No holds barred communication. Snarky comments. In case you're like me, I have to tell you, snark means snide and sharply critical remarks. I had to look that up last year. (laughs) I wonder, is it the advent of social media with its instantaneous, impulsive-inducing communication? Oh, I think I should say this. Boom, it's said. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all the others with their instant access to communication with countless others. When I get on Facebook, which is not that often, I know, I try, the neighborhood page is the worst, at least in my feed. The folks will, after a mere moment's reflection, it seems, at best, make some comment about where the neighbor put their garbage can, the level of leaves left over in the neighbor's yard, or maybe complaining about the fact that we have a little ice on our streets because the county didn't prioritize our neighborhood. Someone eventually comments and calls it in, and then a little battle online ensues, and maybe eventually the poster apologizes, but by then it's far too late, and who reads that far down in the chain? Why did I read that far down in the chain? (laughs) The blast has happened. And what was the point? What do we now think of that neighbor or all the other neighbors? I put my garbage cans out much more self-consciously now, I will tell you. (laughs) I want to get them right, right up against the curb in the right direction, get them in quickly. I struggle to post on Facebook, and I have posted. I usually post if I go to a justice event. I want people to know about some social justice issue. Rarely anything else. And here's the reason. I have all these great ideas of things I would post. And then I think, oh, how could that be misinterpreted? And what would so-and-so think about it? And oh, well, what about this? And eventually, I get exhausted, and I delete the post. And if I needed emotional support, I text a friend. Or pick up the phone and call them. That's rare. I'm a texter. I struggle with these posts because... I want to be able to say what I mean in my heart. And most of the time, my impulsive, really 
sharp-witted comments, though probably right, aren't what I hope for in the world. I used to feel bad about my social media hesitance, but now I don't. I'm learning to value care in how I speak, in what I say, how I bring forth what I hope for in the world with my word. So, have you ever said something that you regretted out of impulse, whether it was online or not? Have you ever said something, maybe it was this really snarky remark that was totally right and funny and not what you really should have said? How did it feel? Did you wish you could rewind, undo, or erase, depending on your era? It doesn't feel good to have spewed that out because you know, you know in your heart that you just created something. You just gave birth to something with your word, and it's not what you wanted in the world. I think we've all been there, though. Don't beat yourself up about it. I've been there. I hope we've all been there. <laughs> the impact of impulsive words that aren't what we really mean hurts. And it's not usually easy in that impulsive moment to bring forth what we really meant what we really mean in the world. What happens if we were to create a habit of such impulsive talk? Snarky remarks over time? What would people think of us? What would people have to determine that we really mean if we always make these snide remarks? If we only speak harshly of others? Over time, word after word, year after year, what do we become? Time is key here, saying anything over time, even if it doesn't really feel impulsive. What if we simply never talk about the things that are important to us, like our values? What if we stay quiet? What if, as Unitarian Universalists, we just choose to avoid talking about these critical issues? like equality, equality for all races. Of course, we talk about that here, but do we talk about that outside very much? Or do we choose to stay silent? And over time, year after year, what are we saying with our silence? Justice and safety for the transgender community. People who could be fired at will just for being who they are. What are we saying about that? Respect for nature while the world's forests are burning, animals' families burn, sent to the brink of extinction. What are we saying? If we sideline our values to stay in the realm of safe chit-chat, what do we become? If we don't go to Richmond, in February, and tell our legislators what is just and equitable and responsible to do as a state, then what does Unitarian Universalism become? In the end, would our faith become more about being nice than about what we value? This is the case for any religion. The way that people carry out their faith, what we say, is our teaching. Christianity is as good an example as any to look at right now, from the lens of Buddhism. In Living Buddha, Living Christ, Thich Nhat Hanh, a Buddhist monk, 
well-known by many, writes about what he appreciates in the Christian religion and how it overlaps and interweaves with his Buddhist faith, not to make them the same, but to appreciate them both as unique flowers, as he says, as their own special type of fruit in the world. He is not without critique. And it is helpful to understand Thich Nhat Hanh's perspective as a Vietnamese monk. We can better appreciate him when we understand his critique of Christianity comes from his lived experience in Vietnam. They experienced decades of religious oppression, from French colonization in the 1800s to, for example, 1963, when the president forbid anyone in Vietnam from being able to celebrate their Buddhist holidays. So he's experienced this cultural imperialistic oppression in the guise of Christianity. His life can't help but associate Christianity with cultural domination and imperialism, and yet in this book, he asks a deep, soul-searching, intentional question. What is beautiful in Christianity? How is it like Buddhism? What are our teachings in common? And where did Christianity go wrong? When he talks about the similarities, there's so much in there that sounds like early Christianity and less like the New Testament. And let me tell you some of the difference between early Christianity and the New Testament for those who aren't as familiar with, like, the 300 AD era. As some of you may know, the Christian scripture started to be written right not long after Jesus' death. But in the New Testament canon, the oldest thing we have is perhaps written as early as somewhere in the 70s. There's disagreement. And then the other Gospels are probably in the 90s, and everything else is later, generations after Jesus' death. Prior to around 325, though, there were lots of texts in existence. And in 325, Emperor Constantine of Rome calls the Council of Nicaea, and he really wants everybody to get on the same page and have exactly the same Christianity all through the empire because he wants centralized power and authority for his rule. And that means he wants more power and authority in the central church. He does not want different versions and interpretations and lived experiences of Christianity out there. And neither does the church, because, well, the church leaders want to survive too. So this push for centralized power continues after 325. This is important. I know I'm throwing out dates there. But in 367, something really important happens. This is after Constantine dies in 337. The church is still working on centralized power. 367, Archbishop Athanasius of Alexandria bans any book that he does not find suitable and affirming to the centralized true power of the church. And among the things that were banned is something called the Gospel of Thomas. It was referenced in other texts, but until 1945, it was just mythical. It didn't exist anywhere. It was gone. Athanasius banned it. Some people say he ordered all these other texts destroyed, but nobody can be sure. We do have a letter saying that they're banned. Well, in 1945, a farmer in Egypt named, what is his name, Muhammad al-Saman, discovered something buried in his field. He discovered 52 texts that later we found were likely buried by a monastery, one of the earliest Coptic Christian monasteries. They were buried after they were banned by Athanasius to protect them. And one of them, the Gospel of Thomas, was written around 
50 AD, before the earliest gospel in the New Testament. And we can see why it was a problem for the Christian church, who was trying at the time to centralize power. So, what is the difference between the New Testament and the Gnostic Gospels? There are lots of nuanced differences, and you can read lots of early Christian you know, scholarship about it, but I want to pinpoint one key central point. In the New Testament, it says things like, there is only one right way and only one right religion, only one way to God, and it is through the church authority. For example, in John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. No one can get here except through me. And later scripture supports that you can only get through, get to God through the church hierarchy, through the priests. But in the Gospel of Thomas, we have a contrast before the Gospel even begins because the person who is supposedly writing it is Thomas the twin. Twin symbolic here, meaning he's a twin to Christ like all of us are. We are all children of God. So Thomas is referred to as the twin, and in the Gospel it says things like this. Whosoever drinks from my mouth will become as I am and will become and I will become that person. Drinks from my mouth, uses my words. Speaking the word of love and justice as Jesus did, you'll become what you seek and, and speak as he did. And in another text from the same find, Jesus is speaking to the reader. This is Thomas the Contender's text. Since it has been said that you are my twin and my true companion, it is not fitting for you to be ignorant of yourself. This is for any reader. So while you accompany me, although you do not yet understand, you have already come to know, and you will be called the one who knows. For whosoever has known himself, who does not know himself, knows nothing, but he who has known himself has already understood the depth of all things. You do not have to go to some church authority. You can know truth through yourself. This is gnosis, true inner knowing. But it's not solipsism. It's not... No, the self is the only thing, because they do speak so heavily of justice in the Gnostic Gospels. So while the New Testament tells us Jesus and the church is the only mediator of truth, these Gospels tell us you are the access point to truth. Anyone is the access point to truth. And, well, that was threatening to what the early Christian church in Rome was trying to accomplish. Say what you mean. The church leaders like Athanasius certainly did say what they meant, which just wasn't what Jesus meant. Of course, nobody knows exactly what Jesus said. We have all of these references and different people writing it down, 50 AD, you know, maybe 20 years after his death. But we do know that around 50 AD, a significant number of Christians were saying things like, we can find the truth and goodness of Jesus by speaking love and justice and healing others, just as he did. From a message of empowerment and openness to closed and centralized authority. And this is what Thich Nhat Hanh is struggling with. He's not struggling with Christianity. He was struggling with this idea that Christianity was the only way. He finds so much immeasurable beauty in the Christian religion, as I do. He just struggled with this imposition that there was only one right way to God. 
And this, he quotes Pope John II as being the epitomization of his struggle. This is Pope John. Christ is absolutely original and absolutely unique. If he were only wise like Socrates, if he were a prophet like Muhammad, if he were enlightened like the Buddha, without any doubt, he would not be what he is. He's the only mediator between God and humanity. But Thich Nhat Hanh disagreed and said, of course Christ is unique. But who is not unique? Socrates, Muhammad, the Buddha, you and I, we're all unique. All of us. The notion that Christianity provides the only way of salvation and all other religious traditions are of no use, this is what hurts Thich Nhat Hanh. The attitude excludes dialogue and fosters intolerance and discrimination. It doesn't help. Unlike the earlier Christian teachings, the canonized texts tend to limit diversity. It's true. But there are many Christian religions today, many churches you can go to, that do not preach this anymore. They are saying a more inclusive message. They have learned over the years, and they are practicing diverse ways of being Christians. Every religion can learn from what Thich Nhat Hanh is pointing out. The absence of a true religious experience brings forth intolerance and a lack of understanding. Organized religions, therefore, must all create conditions that are favorable for true practice of that religion, true experience to flower. Authentic ecumenical practices help different schools within traditions learn from one another and restore the best aspects of the tradition that may have been eroded. So Christianity can remind itself of the earlier teachings and practices, all branches of Christianity, and the cousins and people that have learned from Christianity, like Unitarian Universalists, although we've learned from many other religions as well. As different schools of Buddhism, says Thich Nhat Hanh, can practice authentically and listen and learn from each other. And each of us, Unitarian Universalists, must find our application of faith. We must find our own application of faith. We must sit with our principles, get it on the back of your order of service each week, and speak the word as our own, our word as we hear it. I'll read the principles, and you can look at them, and take a moment just to take a breath between them and think about what it means for you. Don't sit there desperately trying to memorize the principles so you can prove you know it. Just think about what it means to you. The inherent worth and dignity of every person. Justice, equity, and compassion in human relations. Acceptance of one another and encouragement to spiritual growth in our congregations. A free and responsible search for truth and meaning. The right of conscience and the use of a democratic process within our congregations and in society at large. The goal of world community, world community, with peace, liberty, and justice for all. 
respect for the interdependent web of all existence of which we are a part. And the proposed eighth principle, not printed on your order of service. Working to build a diverse, multicultural, beloved community by our actions that accountably dismantle racism and other oppressions in ourselves and in our institutions. Let us reflect on the last excerpt, one last excerpt from the Gospel of Thomas. The Gospel of Thomas, by the way, when I read it in seminary, was my entry into appreciation for Christianity, which I had grown up all around me, and it wasn't until I read the Gospel of Thomas that I saw a beauty that I needed to see in it. This is, again, the non-canonical banned text found at Nag Hammadi in the farmer's field. His disciples questioned him and said to him, Do you want us to fast? How shall we pray? Shall we give alms? What diet shall we observe? And Jesus said, Do not tell lies. Do not do what you hate. For all things are plain in the sight of heaven. If you fast, you will give rise to sin for yourselves. If you pray, you will be condemned. And if you give alms, you will do harm to your spirits. When you go into any land and walk about in the districts, if they receive you, eat what they will set before you and heal the sick among them. For what goes into your mouth will not defile you, but that which issues forth from your mouth, it is that which will defile you. You use don't need to memorize our principles to the letter. I give you permission. <laughs> we do not need to perfectly follow Robert's rules. There are certainly other ways towards democracy. We do not have to practice and perfect our elevator speeches. We need to speak our truth that matters on the issues that are hurting right now. We can do this in conversation with friends and family, speaking out to confront racism, saying ouch when there's a sexist, heterosexist, racist, classist, ableist joke. Say something. Speak what you mean. And we can go to Richmond together and talk to the big high honchos in the legislature and tell them how we believe they can build justice and equity. You have to say what you really mean if you want to allow it to come to fruition. If you say something other than what you mean to say, including silence, then over time, eventually you will become something you didn't mean to become. We all will. Let us think carefully then and courageously before we speak. Let us speak truth and like our religious ancestors, Buddhists and Christian heretics and others, let us speak truth to empower love. Amen.